we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. What is legal and illegal and good for you and bad for you? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse on the America Out Loud Radio Network. Pot, Mary Jane, weed, grass, reefer, they're among the many names for marijuana. Marijuana is one strain of cannabis, the plant species that includes hemp. Hemp contains low levels of the psychoactive compound THC, and marijuana has high levels. Another active compound in cannabis is cannabidiol, CBD. That's what we kind of see in the stores. And it's not supposed to be psychoactive. Any baby boomers who indulge can confirm that the amount of THC in marijuana has increased over the last 25 years. In the mid-1990s, the average THC content of confiscated weed was about 4%. By 2014, it was about 12%, with some strains having THC levels as high as 37%. Well, there's a checkered history of the legalization of marijuana, but things really changed in 1996 when California had a Compassionate Use Act, which allowed marijuana for medical use by chronically ill persons. Today, medical marijuana is legal in all but 11 states, although it remains illegal under federal law. Many doctors aren't familiar with the types of cannabis and the various uses It can sometimes help patients when other more mainstream medications and treatments fail. My guest today is an integrative medicine physician and a highly regarded national expert in the use of cannabis. Dr. Dustin Sulak is a renowned integrative medicine physician based in Maine, and his practice balances the principles of osteopathy, mind-body medicine, spirituality and healthcare, and medical cannabis. Dr. Sulak educates medical providers and patients on its clinical use while continuing to explore the therapeutic potential of this emerging medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sulak. Thank you, Marilyn. I'm happy to be back. Well, I'm just going to start right off. What is cannabis? Tell us where it comes from. I think a lot of people kind of confuse marijuana with cannabis as such. Can you explain the differences, where it comes from, and all that sort of good stuff? Yes, it's it's a good idea to start off with the terminology because these names are used in very different ways. And so I'll give you the way that most people in the field are referring to them now. C- cannabis or cannabis sativa is the Latin name for a plant species. And uh, that species comes in many different forms, just like you might 
you know, have tomatoes that grow big ones and little ones and different colored ones. And that's, that's the case with cannabis, but with even more variety. And so you can have types of cannabis that are really long and tall, and they grow mostly fiber that could be used for making fiberboard or textiles. And uh, traditionally that's been called hemp, you know, more of an industrial product. And then um, nowadays hemp also includes more medicinal types of cannabis that are low in the psychoactive component THC, which you just mentioned. So it, hemp went from being just industrial for textiles and, and things like that to now also being a medicinal product. And then some people are, are referring to the types of cannabis that have higher levels of THC as marijuana, which is a term, you know, that was kind of originated with some um, background in racial discrimination against Mexicans uh, and later jazz music, black jazz musicians. And so some people in the field prefer not to use that and we'll, we'll call it medical cannabis, inferring that it has a, a medicinal property and uh, has more THC in it. But these, these are really getting blurred all over the place. And and these are um, all of the same species, so they can crossbreed with each other. And, and there's many new uh, types of cannabis that uh, breeders are growing, both for medicinal properties and for industrial use. So it's one plant that has a, a number of, of different things that it can offer humans. And I, I su suspect most of what we're going to be talking about today are the the hemp varieties and the THC-containing cannabis varieties uh, that are used for health. Well, yes, we are. Now, one question, and I always have this in my mind, because way back when I was an anesthesia resident, research on endorphins was being done. I hesitate, or I don't hesitate to say I actually won a research prize for studying, uh, a, we called them encephalins at the time, um, in patients. So uh, do we have natural cannabis in our body, like how we have natural endorphins? Absolutely. So the, the, because the cannabis plant, the active compounds in there, which we call cannabinoids, they, they're fat-soluble. It, it's a little harder to work with fat-soluble compounds in the laboratory. And so while the endorphins and the opioids, they, they were kind of figured out in the 1970s, it wasn't until the late 1980s that researchers have been able to really, you know, uh, look at the compounds in the body and the targets for THC. But they have been asking this question for decades. They knew that you could take THC and give it to rodents or give it to humans and do all sorts of things with it. It could affect the brain. It could affect the gut, the, the muscles, the connective tissues. And, you know, the, the big question was, how does one compound or one drug do so many different things in the body uh, affecting so many diverse tissue types and and body systems and so that answer that was discovered in the late 1980s and early 1990s was the you know called the endocannabinoid system named after the plant that led us to its discovery and it turns out that the endocannabinoid system is actually distributed through the body much more than the endorphin system. The, the cannabinoid receptors are all over. There's more of them in the brain than any other type of neurotransmitter receptor. You, you pretty much find them in every cell, every tissue type. And uh, over time, it's been discovered that this system is playing a very important regulatory role on all the other systems. It's, it's considered a homeostatic regulatory system, which means it keeps the other systems in the body 
in balance. And now we know that uh, humans aren't the only ones that have this. This is a very old system. So if you look at a sea squirt, a very primitive chordate animal, it has a cannabinoid receptor that's almost identical to the ones found in humans. Scientists estimate that uh, this system goes back um, hundreds of millions of years versus uh, the plant cannabis, which is estimated to be only about 40 million years old. So we've, as, uh, as animals, we've been using cannabinoids much longer than the plants even existed. Well, it's very interesting in, in talking about this because uh, people have always sought mind-altering substances, whether it be alcoholic or the various plants, well, opium, that um, changes how we feel. We're looking for soporific effects and as well as healing effects. And it looks like cannabis can kind of do it all. It's yeah, it, it's just such a versatile medicine because of how it kind of mimics the ways our body are already using the cannabinoids to, to regulate the other systems. So it becomes very versatile. Well, let's just start at the top. Since you said most of these receptors are in the nervous system, what are the effects? And we'll go through the body parts as the show goes on and, and talk about some of the things that it does and uh, some of the pros, some of the cons. So let's start with that nervous system. What does it do? Okay. So in general, the theme that you'll see with the function of the cannabinoid receptors, and so this could be by consuming THC, you could stimulate these receptors, but also just in your normal physiology. Right now, as you and I talk and the listeners listen, we're using these compounds for the same reason. And the theme of how they work is that they will suppress excessive activity. So if you look in the brain, for example, when there's too much of a neurotransmitter being released in a synapse, and that neurotransmitter could be glutamate, for example. That's a that's a stimulating neurotransmitter. Eventually, the cell that's receiving the glutamate needs to be able to say to the other cell, hey, stop sending me glutamate. That's too much. It's starting to make me feel toxic. You know, I'm, I, I'm certainly anthropomorphizing these cells, but that, that's essentially what's happening. And, and so the signal, the, the actual communication message from the one cell to the other is the cannabinoid. And it says, stop sending glutamate, there's too much glutamate there. That could happen if there was too much GABA. It could happen if there's too much serotonin or too much dopamine. So it's, it's this system where it's suppressing any excessive activity. But then when you zoom out and look at the brain as a whole, you'll see that certain areas of the brain are much more densely populated with these cannabinoid receptors. And so these are the areas of the brain where we expect cannabis to produce a, a stronger effect if it's consumed. So that would be the, the emotional and memory centers. That's why too much cannabis can make you forgetful, but it can also suppress excessive emotional activity. Like, so for someone with PTSD, that's a good thing. Uh, we see it in the movement centers of the brain. And this is why cannabis can help with things like tremors and spasticity. And then we, we see a lot of it in the uh, pain signaling regions of the brain, uh, where the opioid receptors are also co-located and they work together there. 
And then we see it in, in some of the cognitive centers in the brain. So it's, and it's everywhere in the brain, but, but there's much higher densities in those regions that I mentioned. And then, of course, when you look at the effects of someone who's using cannabis, it all correlates. Yes, their cognition changes. They might get more creative or you know, have a very different perspective on things. Their motivation may change. Their emotional uh, intensity may change. And, and so same with their movements and, um, and their pain signaling uh, or pain perception. Well, tell me about the difference with adults using cannabis versus teenagers, because teenagers' brains aren't formed yet. What do some neurologists say? Not until the age of 26. Does it have some ill effect on a developing brain? It it certainly could, depending on how it's used. Um So I say that because we know that this endocannabinoid system is very important in growth and development. It's it's highly active in the embryo and in the fetus, and um, and throughout development, which as you pointed out in the nervous system, that goes into the mid twenties. So you wouldn't want to undermine the capacity of the endocannabinoid system to do its work. We want it functioning fully while people. Are developing, and uh, so there's uh, a way to use cannabis that would undermine it, which is excessive use. If if we take cannabis again and again in high doses, basically we build tolerance to the THC, and that occurs because our cells, those those cannabinoid receptors, get too much stimulation, and the cell says, "I gotta I gotta pull that receptor inside, make it unavailable." for anybody to turn on. It's just getting hit too much by all this THC that the teenager's smoking, for example. And when we build tolerance to the THC, that means we're also building tolerance to our endocannabinoids, the compounds that our bodies are making. And that that would not be a good thing. Now, when you look at um, you know, observational data of large cohorts of, of young people that use cannabis, you will see that there are some negative outcomes associated with that adolescent use. So later in life, they may be um, more likely to have psychiatric conditions. They may be less likely to have success in various areas of their life. But that kind of data is hard to draw conclusions from because you might say, well, maybe the reason they're using cannabis is because they're already you know, having such big challenges in their life and the cannabis is helping them or you could say well maybe the cannabis is causing all those challenges and it's you know the direction of causality is hard to determine and it's usually very complex but when you look at um, uh, longitudinal studies of young people where they start the study and they're not using cannabis and then they follow these young people over many years and some of them become cannabis users and some of them don't and you look at the differences there that that tells a little bit more about what might be happening and so you'll see some very minor cognitive de- deficits but you know a meta analysis that reviewed all the IQ data on cannabis users it turned out to be like a 2 point deficit on average like stuff that's not that clinically significant. You'll see changes in motivation, um, but it's not really like they have zero motivation. They just end up valuing things like school a lot less than their non-cannabis using peers. So there's definitely risk there to the developing brain. And I think we have a lot of young people vaping very potent cannabis in the bathroom at high school right now. I I don't think that's a good idea. Um, But using cannabis as a medicine under medical supervision for teenagers can be um, probably a lot safer than some of the other treatments they're getting exposed to. 
Well, this is good information to know because we have a lot of parents that listen and there's a lot of kids on these ADHD medicines and God knows what else these days. And delving into which a whole nother topic, these kids going out and getting these pills laced with fentanyl and then overdosing. There's so much trouble with these young kids and it would be wonderful if we found a way to take care of them with something that's more controlled. After the break, we're going to come back and the next organ system I'd love to talk about is digestive, because I think that's what everybody has heard about with marijuana, that it improves your appetite, makes you hungry. And um, so we'd like to go into the various things that cannabis does to the digestive system after the break. I'd just like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. Right now, I'd just like you to listen to me for a minute while I talk about my old buddy, Cofix RX. We are right in the midst of cold and flu season. And gee, Cofix RX, we've talked about it before. I've been using it for a couple of years since it came out. And what it is, for those of you who don't know, it's a nasal spray. It's mostly povidone iodine. It has some xylitol in it. Both of these things are antiviral powerhouses. And most of the germs that come in and make us sick and get lower down in our respiratory tract come in, guess where? Through the nose. So if we can inhale something that can stop these viruses from replicating before they have a chance to make us sick, why not use it? I love Cofix RX. I like to use it when I go shopping. Even though I'm not sick, I try to keep myself from getting sick because I'm out there with people that I don't know and I don't want to pick up any bugs. So you can get Cofix RX in a lot of places, pharmacies, health food stores, and you can get it on our website. And we have a little Cofix RX button. You can click it on, read more about it, and see if it looks right for you. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on americaoutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, americaoutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use Cofix RX because it works. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Before the break, we were talking to Dr. Dustin Sulak about medical cannabis. 
and we talked about the effects on the nervous system. Now we're going to talk about the effects on the digestive system, which is something I think that's what most people associate when, well, these days eating or smoking marijuana. So what are these effects on the digestive system? So similar to the brain and the nervous system, we have the endocannabinoid system down-regulating or dampening down excessive activity in the gut. And so this could be excessive motility, uh, like if you eat something and it passes through you too fast, it's too much too much activity there. If there's too much secretion, like for heartburn or diarrhea, and um and then also if there's inflammation in the gut. And so, of course, cannabis became maybe in terms of its medical properties, most famous for how it could relieve nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy in a way that other drugs could never do. And, and the reason for that is because it has a totally distinct mechanism of action. It's stimulating this endocannabinoid system. All the other nausea drugs are working on other systems. And then it also became uh, popular for helping with wasting syndrome, and uh, especially in the HIV AIDS community back in the 80s and 90s. And um, and so, it yes, it, it stimulates appetite. That's one of the things that it does. And it, beyond increasing appetite, it also enhances what we could call the hedonic aspects of eating, like the pleasure. It makes the food taste better, makes people enjoy their food more. And so that's uh, something that uh, sick people who have nausea or a hard time eating really appreciate because most of the anti-nausea drugs, they, they might remove nausea if they work, but they don't actually stimulate appetite or help you enjoy the food. So so cannabis is able to do all of that. It, it has settled down whatever's excessive, and um, and then also inflammation. There's uh, patients that have inflammatory bowel disease. So they not only do they get relief from their symptoms, like it could slow down the diarrhea or stop it, but they also get a healing effect uh, and um, able to, you know, have things happen like this, stop bleeding or stop needing other anti-inflammatory medications for their condition. Well, that sounds pretty good. Are there any bad side effects with regard to the digestive system? Yes, there there are. So, and this kind of gets back to like any tool, right? It's it you know anything could be a poison. It's the dose that makes it so. Um, so with cannabis, there's a really interesting syndrome called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And it's basically, it occurs in people who have been heavy users of, of cannabis or marijuana for a long time. So they might've been smoking, you know, joints every day for a decade or taking, you know, really high doses of hash or concentrate or something like that. And it, it kind of comes out of the blue and they, they start having these really intense vomiting episodes that look like cyclic vomiting syndrome, something that used to be called abdominal migraine. So it's kind of a similar clinical picture. Um, and often the only way to stop vomiting is to get into a hot shower or a hot bath. And that just works temporarily. Then the episode passes and the person never realizes that that has anything to do with their cannabis use. It's not like they just smoked and all of a sudden vomited afterwards. It, it's something that, that seemingly comes out of the blue. And, and then they go to the emergency department because they're dehydrated and they can't stop vomiting. And of course, they, they require very expensive workups there, you know, CT scans and sometimes uh, endoscopies and all sorts of things. Um, and then it turns out there's nothing wrong with them. And the cure for this uh, problem is just to stop using cannabis. 
some some people that have this condition can start using it again uh, after a, a long break at very low doses. But this is uh, something that you know has caused a lot of confusion, and then it's also um, caused some other. Uh, problems when the pendulum swings the other way. So I've had patients who are using cannabis appropriately, not overdosing on it. And they're that something comes up, they go to the ER and uh, they're told, well, you just have cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, stop smoking and get out of here. You know, and, and I understand that it's not nice to waste resources on expensive workups if that's the likely diagnosis, but um, sometimes it's not. And, and people are missing out on care just because they have a little THC in their urine or they're using cannabis uh, like under medical supervision. But what I'll say, you know, I think that brings one important point up is that the world of cannabis, there's all of these paradoxical effects. Whatever it helps with, it can do the exact opposite. And that, that might be in a different person. Like you give you give it to one person in a certain dose and it helps relieve their anxiety. Give that same exact dose to another person, it might make their anxiety worse. You know, we just talked about how it's this great anti-nausea medicine that can cause severe vomiting episodes. And and same, like across the board, give it to someone with pain at the right dose and it relieves their pain. If you give them an overdose, they might increase the sensitivity or, or the sensation of their pain uh, temporarily. So there's a lot of paradoxical effects. Well, it's interesting because it makes when you talk about everything's in the dose, it reminds me of homeopathy and some of the old theories of medicine. And as we do more and more research and get down to genetic levels and discovering why our bodies are the way our bodies are, you realize that it's such fine tuning. And to me, if you weren't spiritual before, you'd be spiritual after looking at the fine tuning of the human body and why we should take care of ourselves, frankly. But I agree. What's that old expression? My body is a temple. And we have to remember that. So, I'd like to go on to the next organ system, which is, of course, very important to all of us. It's our cardiovascular system, our heart. Um, I had recently read something, I think it came out of the American Heart Association meeting, where they were talking about marijuana use being tied to heart failure and strokes and whatnot. So this is in, you know... I always have to look at these study headlines with a grain of salt because sometimes people are looking for an answer and they do anything to find it without looking at the whole picture. So I'd like to look at the whole picture. What are the positives and negatives about cannabis on the cardiovascular system? Well, so just in general, cannabis does have effects directly on the cardiovascular system and then indirectly via the nervous system. And so if we look directly at the at the cardiovascular system, it's a, a vasodilator. And that, that's because it's a muscle relaxant. So the muscles that are around the arteries will relax and that lets blood pressure go down a little bit. And then inside the arteries, it also, and, and not just the arteries, the arterioles, the capillaries, it causes an increase of nitric oxide production and release. And so that's, that's another one that can dilate and decrease blood pressure. So you see a blood pressure lowering effect. And um, it's it's not uh, very strong. Like most people, 
that use cannabis, they don't get lightheaded, they don't faint. It's it, you know, it's mild, but it's it's measurable. And and giving cannabis um, to people with hypertension over twelve weeks does reduce their blood pressure often by about ten points, which is similar to what a lot of medications do. Um, specifically in the heart, cannabis can increase cardiac contractility, like actually make the heart pump a little harder. And then via what's happening in the nervous system with cannabis, you can um, get even more of a decrease in blood pressure, which again makes the heart have to work harder to get the blood where it's going. So in, in someone that has a very sensitive cardiovascular system, like let's say they get chest pain because they have some coronary artery disease if they do vigorous activity. Um, and if they, they know that if they walk, you know, uh, 50 yards, they're going to be out of breath and their chest hurting them. That that type of fragile situation, I, I would definitely not recommend someone like that use inhaled cannabis because even at rest, it could increase the demand on their heart. They, you know, it could be as if they're exercising temporarily. And there have been some cases in the literature of people with unstable cardiac situations that have overdosed on cannabis and actually died. Uh, at least one out of Canada a few years back had a, had a very strong uh, lollipop, I believe it was, and and died afterwards. But but those are going to be the really the rare cases. Now, also, uh, th there's a significant amount of data that suggests that cannabis has a protective role in the heart, basically by decreasing inflammation at the time of an injury. And so, you know, in, in animal models, it's very clear you can give uh, the rodents a small amount of THC two hours later, give them a heart attack, and then look at the outcomes, and you'll see much less damage, much, much um, faster healing in the when cannabis was present. Because again, cannabis is suppressing excessive activity. So it's helping diminish that inflammation and, and speed the healing process. Um, but the the two articles that came out recently, they, they actually weren't articles. They hadn't made it through peer review. They were just abstracts that were published at a conference. And, um, and, and you know, the first one said that uh, marijuana raises the risks of heart attack, failure, and stroke. Um, and, and, you know, so, so looking at, at these headlines, uh, they were definitely sensationalized and exaggerated. And, and basically what we have here is just cross-sectional data. Like I mentioned earlier in the interview, a lot of this type of data where you just take a snapshot of a population, it's, it's very hard to point a finger at cause. So I'll just, I'll give you a very quick uh, summary here. So the first one looked at over 150,000 people that did not have heart failure and uh, followed them for around uh, three to four years was the average time following these people. So no heart failure, follow them for three to four years. Uh, during that time, about 2% of them developed heart failure. So then they looked at that 2% that developed heart failure, um, tried to use statistics to account for all the other differences like age, sex, race, ethnicity, alcohol and tobacco use, their employment status, their income, like all of those variables were factored in statistically. And then when they looked at what was left in terms of cannabis, they found that among them, that among those people that were using cannabis every day, they had more of an increased uh, risk of heart failure than those who were using cannabis weekly, monthly, or not at all. And so they, they said, well, this means that daily cannabis use increases the risk of heart failure, um, which is a big leap. It's, it's just a really big leap. And, it, and if it did increase 
the risk of heart failure, that that increase is tiny. You know, basically it, it looked like an absolute difference of about 0.6%. So so really minor. And and the second study was was similar, looking at a, a cross-sectional data on uh, people who had heart attacks and strokes. And, and so I'll, I'll pause there, but um, some of these things are really good for making headlines. There's much better data out there that uh, um, contradicts this, that says, look, cannabis users have lower rates or same rates of heart disease and stroke to, when, when you look at them versus non-users. Well, thank you for explaining that. And as I said, uh especially these days with the internet and everything, it seems like the headline gets it all. But then when you probe into the actual study, it's not a very good study or it starts off with a biased hypothesis in the first place. Since oh, and I just want to share something oh, about the ahead. second study. Yeah, real quick, mm -hmm. just to uh, um, illustrate what you just said. So uh, the second study was looking at uh, heart disease and stroke. And, and what they found was that people with a diagnosis of cannabis use disorder, while they had 20% more cardiac and stroke events, they had 50% lower all-cause mortality. And of course, the, the lower all-cause mortality didn't make it into the media or, or the headlines at all. Um, but that's that's a big difference, right? 20% more strokes and heart attacks, but 50% less death over the... So, um, and that that it, there's a, a mechanism behind that. Like I mentioned in the animal studies, cannabis has a protective effect. And certainly with stroke, I, I forgot to mention that with the nervous system, but part of its ability to dampen down this excessive activity comes in really handy in the time of an injury. Because when we get an injury, we get all sorts of leakage of ions and neurotransmitters and a lot of excessive activity that becomes damaging and toxic to the nerves. And so the endocannabinoid system, and if there's extra cannabis around, these can really protect from the effects of a stroke or a traumatic brain injury or a brain bleed. And there's human data looking at people coming into the hospital, say with TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, and splitting them into two groups, those that have cannabis in their urine and those that don't. And uh, the ones with cannabis on board are much less likely to die and have, um, you know, permanent disability and all sorts of things like that. So it's uh, it's protective in the nervous system and in the heart as well. Gee, maybe the NFL should lighten up their rules on having the players smoke marijuana if it's somewhat protective against TBI. Who knows? Absolutely. <laughs> and a lot of the players have been campaigning for that because they found that to be the case. Well, it would certainly help out. My goodness. Well, we're going to go into more of this um, after the break, but really quickly, can you just tell me the difference of if you smoke marijuana versus you eat it or versus these tinctures? And if it's, you know, and we can go beyond the, the break if you need to, to go into that explanation. Sure. It really has, uh, the biggest difference is the time course of the effect that one will experience. So taking in anything through the lungs, uh, and that could be smoking or it could be a, a safer way of inhaling it, like a, a vaporizer, which just warms it up and you, you get to breathe in a warm mist of the medicine. Um, that'll kick in very fast. People will feel that within two to five minutes, but it also doesn't last very long. It can last, you know, a few hours uh, for, for some people in terms of like a, a medicinal effect. 
Um, that's going to be much more likely also to produce psychoactive effects like euphoria and impairment because it all kind of gets into the bloodstream right away. So the blood levels go way up and then the brain levels do. Versus when somebody takes it by mouth, they're going to absorb it very slowly and gradually over time. So it takes a while to kick in, but then it lasts a lot longer. And if you take the right dose, you can um, you know, be very precise about getting the effects that one is looking for. So you could get, say, the you know, pain relief without the euphoria or the impairment. It, it's possible to do that with inhalation as well, but there's just a much more narrow window between the level of relief and side effect. With the oral dosing, you have a wider window. And so um, a lot of my patients are using oral dosing as like their baseline therapy. They'll take it every day uh, on a schedule and it, it'll cause no side effects. But then if say they're having a really bad day and they're having breakthrough pain or they get triggered and their PTSD is acting up and they're having all sorts of flashbacks or anxiety, then they might layer in the inhaled cannabis on top of that for those fast acting results. Okay. Thank you for that explanation. It's something I've wondered about and I know a lot of other people do. So after the break, we'll get into a couple more organ systems, and then we'll talk a little bit about the politics of cannabis and marijuana and what's going on. We hear so much about increased addiction, and is it really addictive, and should we legalize? All those good things after the break. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We've got our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa, and you can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 p.m. And on iHeartRadio the next morning at 8 a.m., you can listen on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. The part I love is all shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and the episodes are on lots of podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher. So make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse. One thing to remember that keeps it active and never boring is we've got a different doctor on every night. Mondays with me, Dr. Marilyn Singleton. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesday with Dr. Peter McCulloch. Thursday with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And Fridays with Dr. Harvey Reich. And if that's not enough, we've got Nurses Out Loud Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. So thanks again for listening. Expert opinions, honest debate, and in-depth investigations are what you've come to expect from AmericaOutloud.news. We don't shy away from speaking the truth boldly and plainly. All that's missing is the propaganda that has infected legacy and social media. Get the best of down and dirty, wholesome American speak. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our redox-based products tap into reserves within you to power your personal well-being. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, Use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Before the break, I promised we'd go through a couple more organ systems that cannabis has an effect on with Dr. Dustin Sulek. So I'm going to ask about the eyes and the ears. We've heard about, it's always kind of like old folks, smoking pot for glaucoma. Is there anything else that uh, cannabis does for our eyes and ears? So um, that is one of the most, uh, I'd say, um, well-researched and understood medical applications of cannabis to the eyes would be glaucoma. And and one thing that I want to point out, again, on this line of uh, paradoxical effects, so while THC can lower the pressure in the eyes, which is a good thing for people with glaucoma, CBD can do the opposite. And a lot of people aren't talking about that. CBD can raise pressure, which would be bad for people with glaucoma, and they, they should understand that distinction. Um, there's a, in the same way that cannabis can be protective of the nerves in the brain. It can also be protective of the retina. So there's a lot of animal research going on right now to figure out if these compounds or analogs of these compounds could be used in a way to uh, treat or prevent retinal disease. Um, and, and we'll see how that that goes. You know, there's there's weird things about cannabis in the eyes. There's some evidence that suggests when people use cannabis, they can see better in low light situations, you know, improving their night vision. Uh, I'm not sure how useful that is. And then when it comes to the ears, uh, not not a lot, really. There's, um, you know, for perhaps inner ear disorder, some people with uh, vertigo or, or chronic nausea from from that uh, source, cannabis can settle that down for some for some people. Tinnitus, which is an extremely common ear problem or hearing problem, uh, extremely common and very poorly understood by medicine. Uh, cannabis definitely has a bi-directional or, or a paradoxical effect there. Some people, it really quiets it down and relieves the bothersomeness of the tinnitus. And then for other people, it makes it really loud and annoying and normable, uh, 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 you know, annoying um, and um, they, you know, I've had patients that were unable to use cannabis to treat some other condition just because it was having the side effect of worsening their tinnitus so much. Well, tinnitus is a real problem. Uh, just as an aside, is there anything you know of that helps that out? 
I wish, Marilyn. It is such a weird one. Um, you know, I feel like it's got to be some medical discovery waiting to happen. And when we figure out tinnitus, we're going to understand so much more about our bodies and the brain and physiology. But uh, no, it's, uh, um, I'm, uh, you know, sad to say that like so many other uh, clinicians and disciplines in medicine, I don't have a very effective way of treating it. Well, Whenever I think of tinnitus, it takes me back to my high school years. I took Latin in high school, and our teacher, Mrs. Reed, who was Italian, so we learned Latin with an Italian accent, would always tell us to, when it was time to sit down, tintinabulum sonuit yam. It means the bell has already rung. So whenever mm. I think of tinnitus, it takes me back. So now we mm. know where tinnitus comes from. It means bell and ringing. So anyway, so so much for that little aside. Now, a, another thing before we get into a little bit of politics about marijuana is the reproductive system. I'm interested in that because I know a young man who they were trying to get pregnant and he smoked pot all the time. And I told him, well, quit smoking pot. Because I heard, and I'm no expert in it, that's why I have you to talk to, that it worsens sperm production. Is that true? It It's the quality of the semen changes. So cannabis has a drying effect on a lot of uh, secretions. And at, you know, at, at kind of normal and therapeutic doses, you might not see this, but when people are using enough cannabis, say, to experience euphoria, like if they're using it to get high, then they're, you know, likely to have dry mouth. That's what people talk about. But what they don't talk about is vaginal dryness and also decreased or, or altered production of seminal fluid. And so um, the quality of the semen changes and is probably less conducive uh, to uh, fertilization. And then the sperm themselves change their behavior. And this is just so, I love it when we when we look at like the macro and the micro and we see the same thing happening. So literally the, the sperm under the influence of THC are less likely to make it to their target. They kind of wander around, they go in places they don't usually go to. They, they just like don't stay focused on the task at hand. Uh, they swim differently. Uh, and so, yes, if, if a couple is trying to get pregnant uh, and they're using cannabis, um, especially for the man to stop using cannabis for a while and see if that helps, that there can be some potential effects on female fertility, but um, much less likely and, and less uh, documented. Well, okay. Good to know for all you people out there trying to have babies, which we need more of, in my opinion. So, all right, we've talked about some of the good things. Now, the um, government uh, substance abuse uh, arm has come out with these kind of appalling statistics that there's a lot more substance abuse and that marijuana in young adults is the most used, quote-unquote, illicit drug, since, as we talked about, it's still illegal for recreational use federally. Is marijuana addictive? Is it reefer madness? Um, and what would happen if it were totally legalized? These are that's that's kind of a great big question. And just go for it. What are your thoughts? 
Well, you know, I think just even backing up a little bit, um, it, I, I like where you started the question. So, yes, uh, cannabis, marijuana, th- these things can be addictive. Anything can be, right? You know, TV shows, popcorn, like uh, everybody's got their thing that they could potentially be susceptible to. And some people weigh more than others. But I think when you're looking in the category of psychoactive drugs, so drugs that you're going to take that are going to change the way you feel or perceive reality, among them, cannabis is one of the least addictive, so much less so than alcohol or co- cocaine, you know, or tobacco, like way, way less so. Um, but some people do get into trouble with it. Like they they come to me as a patient to help, you know, not only do people come to me to get treated with cannabis, but they come to me to get off cannabis when they realize uh, and admit to themselves that it's causing more problems in their life than it's it's helping them. And we have strategies for helping people accomplish that. So yes, some people really do get into trouble with cannabis in a way that is a detriment to their life. But regardless of that, the the government has never been successful in outlawing something that's addictive and actually effectively reducing its its use, right? That just doesn't happen. The drug war has been going on for a long time now. You know, millions or billions of dollars have been poured into it. And it's it's been shown, uh, you know, from an academic standpoint, a, a public health standpoint, that it, it just doesn't work. Making these things illegal, people still have access to them. And what what happens is the access goes into the underground market, and then it you know gets overlapped with other more dangerous substances and and all, all sorts of problems there with with quality and safety and access and. And and then there's the cultural aspect of that as well. Like most teenagers right now know what it looks like for an adult to be a responsible drinker. They've had some exposure to that in their life. And even if they, you know, the pendulum swings a little bit and they get into some overuse of alcohol during their late teens or early 20s, you know, they still have that frame of reference that they might be able to come back to of what it looks like to have a glass of wine or even two with with dinner or something like that. Um, a lot of people don't have that with cannabis. They're they're unable to, uh, you know, kind of visually recognize what that might look like for a healthy person to use cannabis um, in in their life as uh, something that enhances their life. And so I think that's another problem with the prohibition of cannabis is it's kind of disconnected us from the healthy use patterns. Now, the youth is an important question, and there's been a lot of data. We've been able to look at states that have both legalized medical and recreational cannabis and compare them to neighboring states and see what happens with the youth access, the youth use, rates of youth abuse and and problems. And it's it, the data looks really good. I, I'd say that overall, uh, when, when cannabis is legalized, the young people in that uh, community use it less, not more. And I see this in my practice too. It's like it, it becomes that taboo goes away. It's it's not the forbidden fruit anymore, and they're they're less interested in it. And when their parents start showing them that they're using it, then that's when the teenagers really don't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> you know, they they think it's definitely not cool. Uh, if their parents are doing it. So I think um, there's just been a lot of data looking at this, uh, especially in the leading states like Washington and Colorado. And there's really no signal that youth are uh, having more harm to them because it's been uh, legalized. Now, um, it gets a little more nuanced when we look at medical cannabis, because uh, like, for example, in, in states like Maine and Washington, we had medical programs 
that were in effect for years before the state then made it legal for recreational use. And what we've seen happen is that the industry starts shifting towards products and practices that are there to get people high and shifting away from the products uh, that are there for helping people feel better, you know, treating their medical conditions. And so we see a negative impact in general from cannabis legalization uh, on on the actual medical field and the medical and the patients. Uh, a lot of the small businesses that were serving people in the medical uh, markets uh, get outcompeted and 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 you know they they end up going away. So we've seen that happen in Maine. I know it's happening all over the country. You'd be surprised in in states like California. My colleagues out there are having trouble finding good medical products for their patients. It, it it's okay. that's really happening. And then you know I'll, I'll just say one last thing about um, uh, prohibition. And um, and legalization is that I'm I'm personally a, a believer in the power of of the free market and the invisible hand to uh, you know uh, allow for innovation I- improvements in safety imp- improvements in efficiency and I think we we're really not seeing that uh, when it's legalized and regulated it's very hard for uh, governments to do a good job regulating this. And so I, I just want to introduce another term that I think would be probably better for public health, which would be decriminalization. Basically, take away the criminal penalties. Like right now, um, it's very unlikely cannabis is going to harm anyone as much as it could harm them by sending them to court and and to prison. Uh, so just taking away the criminal penalties, uh, redistributing all of those resources into uh, drug treatment and, um, and uh, education, in my opinion, would be a big win. Well, thank you for that. And I, I just think that's so important. I think our history in the United States has certainly shown us that prohibition doesn't work. And as you say, it can make things worse. I mean, look at what happened back in the 20s and the crime and and people come up with something worse than what would be legal. And, and that's a scary thought. And already we're kind of cringe when we think of the cartels bringing in fentanyl, not to mention the human trafficking. But um, we've got a lot of things to poison us. And uh, I think there are better ways to keep people educated than have the government come down with an iron fist. And all too often, the government picks its own winners and losers rather than letting the people choose. Uh, Yeah, that's the big (laughs) problem. And there's a the unintended consequences. I'll give you an example of this, which is also kind of a public service announcement for your for your listeners. So because right now hemp products are legal, hemp meaning, you know, by definition in the United States, it's a, a product um, that has less than 0.3% THC by weight. So that's legal. People can ship, uh, ship hemp products all over the country, but you can't ship anything with too much THC in it. So what's what's been happening is that Product makers are taking CBD, which is a molecule that's grown in the hemp plant, a a synthetic uh, process that can be done in a simple laboratory using heat and acid and maybe a few other reagents. Uh, They can change, like synthetically change the CBD into compounds that are similar to THC. 
but even stronger in many cases, and many of them untested, unknown. They never occurred in nature, um, and and then ship those across state lines. So we have on the internet now people shipping hemp, so-called hemp-based cannabis products that are way more psychoactive, less characterized, much more dangerous than if they you know just ship the real thing, THC. Uh, and some of those are called Delta Eight THC. I think that's some of the least dangerous. There's some that are called HHC and THC acetate, and they have all these names, but all of these uh, synthetic derivatives of um, of cannabis, I, I would stay away from. And most of the products are dirty. They have a lot of, uh, um, by, you know, byproducts from the chemical process. So stay away from those uh, is a big, very strong recommendation. Well, boy, that's a great way to end this show. And I want to thank you for all this information. Tell us your website and how people can get more information and learn about proper hemp products and not some of this garbage that uh, who knows where it comes from. So tell us your website. Yeah, you can find me on healer.com. Just like it sounds H-E-A-L-E-R, healer.com. That's been a complimentary cannabis education website we've had up since 2015, which really takes people through the basics and helps them get started. It also helps people that have been using cannabis maybe for more recreational use and need to switch into more of a medical uh, relationship with it. It helps with that. So you'll find me on healer.com. I also have my own line of hemp products that are grown organically and made in our own factory here in Maine. So you can check those out. And uh, those are on healercbd.com. And you can find a link to it from healer.com as well. Well, thank you very much for all the information, and we'll have the website and our write-up about the show. So I hope to speak with you again, and thanks again for coming. It's a pleasure, Marilyn. Thank you, too, and for all the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you. And I would just like to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. We have so much on our new website platform. We've got a trending cloud you can click on when you see something that interests you about current events. We've got our email where you can email the guest, the host, and we'll get an answer back to you. First names are fine. Um, Any questions, it's up to you. We've got americaoutloud.shop. And this has books and products, and we have discounts with a very unusual code out loud. And uh, there's just so much. And I love the new format of the website, and I know that you will too. And like I always say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.